for a number of years. Uh, my daughter Janice, as, as Billy uh, commented or observed, she, she is uh, Jared's aunt by marriage. Uh, Jared's uncle, Will, married Janice several years ago. And I actually, I actually saw Jared the first time when he was just a little small boy. He wasn't very, Jared, where are you? Where is he? Oh, he's up here. <laughs> he didn't have he didn't have this when I first met him. He was just a small boy, but uh, we've been in touch with their family. Occasionally, we come across his mom and dad and have an opportunity to catch up on news. So uh, you have to be careful what you say. Now I've got kin folk in the congregation, so I need to be careful what I say. Turn over to Second Timothy chapter two, and we're going to get to. We're going to tie the passage that was read for our hearing in with the passage that I want to use for our study this morning. The Apostle Paul is writing to young, young evangelist Timothy. He's, uh, he's giving him instructions with regard to his obligation as a preacher and as a Christian. And when you first read this passage in uh, 2 Timothy 2 verses 1 through 10, you're impressed with the responsibility that Timmy, Timothy has to be a, a teacher, a preacher. And Paul sets forth three uh, analogies, three examples to try to drive home what's involved in being a good teacher. If you'll read the passage with me, let's just read 2 Timothy 2, beginning with verse 1. Thou therefore, my child, be strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and from the things which thou hast heard from me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier on service entangleth himself in the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enrolled him as a soldier. And if also a man contend in the games, he is not crowned, except he have contended lawfully. The husbandman that laboreth must be the first to partake of the fruits. Consider what I say, for the Lord shall give thee understanding in all things. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead of the seed of David, according to my gospel, wherein I suffer hardship unto bonds as a malefactor, but the word of God is not bound. I want you to focus on that last phrase for just a minute. The Word of God is not bound. You cannot bind the Word of God. You can take the proclaimer of the Word, you can put him into prison, you can isolate him, but you cannot stop the preaching of God's Word. I was among those who were privileged to enter into the former Soviet bloc nations in 1992, and I traveled to a, a town in eastern Siberia. It was already cold in the month of September. I didn't know any place on the face of this earth got that cold in September. But it was already cold, and we did some preaching and teaching in the city of Barnaul, eastern Siberia. We traveled, after two weeks there, we traveled overnight to Omsk. And the gentleman who was doing the public preaching was Brother Ivan Kalishnikov. He was native Ukrainian. And as we boarded the train for the trip from Barnaul to Omsk, 
we had four Americans with us and Brother Kalishnikov traveling. That made five, but they put two in each compartment. So two of the Americans were in one compartment. Uh, myself and the elder who was with me were in the middle compartment, and Brother Kalishnikov was in the compartment to the left with a Russian soldier. And as they turned the lights down and began to close the doors up to began going to sleep, I could hear Brother Kalishnikov preaching to that Russian soldier through that thin wall. I know he was preaching because occasionally he would quote a passage and he would call it by name and I would recognize it. Sounds a lot in the Russian like it does in the English. The next morning, after we stopped to get some breakfast, we got off the train. We were allowed to go to a restaurant before reboarding the train for the final leg of our trip. And I said, Brother Kalishnikov, I said, were you preaching to that man last night? And he said, yes, I was. He preached till almost one in the morning. And I said, did he listen? And Brother Kalishnikov said, what choice did he have? <laughs> Brother Kalishnikov knew he had a captive audience. You cannot bind the Word of God. The only way the Word of God can be bound is for the one who has the opportunity to speak that Word, either he refuses to preach or the one who is receiving that Word refuses to listen. But even though in isolated cases where you cannot communicate the Word to some because of hardness of hearts or lack of opportunity, it still goes forth, does it not? And God promised through Isaiah the prophet that his word would go forth. It would not be void. It would accomplish that purpose for which it was sent. Now, there are three analogies that Paul sets forth in this passage. I think all three of them have to do with teaching. Now, they're good analogies by themselves, but still all three of them are in the context of preaching because in verse 2, he says, the things which you have heard from me, the same commit thou to faithful witnesses who shall then be able to teach others also. If you want the divine truth, the principle, if you will, that will secure the growth of the church and the lasting nature of the church, it's found in that passage right there. If we commit to the next generation the Word of God and they commit to the next generation the Word of God, it will continue to grow and to have its effect. I read here recently, I think the illustration was in the Spiritual Sword Lectureship book, that the late Howard Hughes, who was perhaps the wealthiest man alive at his time, with the exception of John Paul Getty, that Howard Hughes' grandfather was a faithful gospel preacher in Dallas, Texas, Brother William Gano. And that generation from himself to his children and then on to his grandchildren, somewhere they dropped the ball and that third generation was lost. You see the importance of teaching and preaching? Let's look at three analogies. I'm going to do three things this morning. I want to look at the analogy itself and maybe expand on each one to give you an appreciation of what the illustration was meant to teach and then we're going to go back through it and we're going to pick up a principle that Paul wanted to stress and then we'll go back through it again and we'll look at the reward that is promised to those who are faithful teachers. How do I know this applies to all of us and not just to preachers? The passage that was read for our hearing by that young man 
in verses 24 through 26. If you'll look at it again, verse 24, The Lord's servant must not strive, but be gentle towards all, apt to teach. If you are the Lord's servant, if you claim to be the Lord's servant, you have a sacred obligation of doing all that you can to help spread the gospel. That doesn't mean that you need to preach. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to be teaching Bible classes uh, to adults or to children, but it does mean that you do all within your power to take the seed of the gospel and get it into the lives of others. If all it means is picking up a track and handing that track to your next door neighbor and saying, come visit us at the Olive Branch Church of Christ, if that's all you do, you've at least given the invitation and the opportunity for that seed to be planted, have you not? Now let's look at the analogies. The first of these is the soldier. Suffer hardship with me, verse 3, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. I had the opportunity to serve four years in the military in the United States Coast Guard. I know what it means to be a good soldier, though the term soldier doesn't really apply to those serving in the Navy or the Coast Guard, but still the principle is the same. I know what it takes to be a good soldier. One thing is you have to have good armor, do you not? You remember when the senior George Bush was president and the little small nation of Kuwait was invaded by Saddam Hussein and we went about taking that country back? And if it weren't really that serious, it would almost be comical to look at the, the news video of these, these uh, soldiers coming out to oppose the, the might of the United States Army in their pickup trucks with guys riding in the back with their rifles and their guns. And one shell from a tank would just completely wipe them out. They were not adequately supplied. And the victorious army, more often than not, has adequate armor to meet the needs. Do you see the application there? Ephesians chapter 6, we're to put on the whole armor of God. It's adequate. Every aspect of that armor is adequate. It meets every single need that we have, spiritually speaking. Whether it is to put on the armor that helps defend us against error, or gives us the armor like the sword of the Spirit that helps us to defeat the enemy as we go forth in battle. So it takes good armor, does it not? A second thing that a soldier needs is he needs a good leader. He needs a good leader. I read somewhere that Napoleon Bonaparte went into battle on one occasion. He was being sorely defeated. He turned to his bugle boy and he said, you need to sound a retreat. The bugle boy said, I don't know how to sound a retreat. I know how to sound a charge. I know how to sound a flank, but I don't know how to sound a retreat. And Napoleon Bonaparte said, then sound a charge. And the young man did, and it became one of Napoleon Bonaparte's more notable victories. The man was a good leader. Whatever else he was, he was a good leader. Well, we have a good leader. Hebrews chapter 12, the captain of our salvation. Jesus is there before us. He is one who is perfect in courage, perfect in knowledge, perfect in sympathy. He's been tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. So I have adequate armor. I have a good leader. 
and I have to have at least a reasonable degree of assurance that I'm going to win the victory. How would a leader impress his army if he were to go in and say, now, fellas, we've got this battle coming up, and it's not likely we're going to come out of this alive. What do you think is going to happen to the morale of the soldiers? It's going to plummet, is it not? But imagine, if you will, a leader who is courageous, who is determined that he will build his troops up, and it gives them enthusiasm as well. So I know that a good soldier, he has to have good armor, he has to have a good leader, and he has to have at least a reasonable degree of assurance that he's going to win the battle. But you know what? We're given absolute assurance that we're going to win the battle. We will be victorious, even though occasionally we may suffer some losses along the way. In the final analysis, the victory is going to be ours. Let's look at the next illustration, the, so, the uh, athlete there in verse uh, 5. And if a man contend in the games, he's not crowned except he contend lawfully. Hold your finger here. I want you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I think Paul was, uh, one of his favorite illustrations was that of an athlete. And he uses that illustration not only there in 2 Timothy, but he uses it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I want to just read a few verses toward the end of the chapter, starting with verse 24. Know ye not that they that run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. Even so run that you may attain. And every man that striveth in the games exercises self-control in all things. Now they do it to receive a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run is not certain uncertainly, so fight I is not beating the air, but I buffet my body and bring it into bondage, lest by any means after that I have preached to others, I myself should be rejected. If you were to pick one word that would sum up what Paul has written in those three verses, what word would it be? I think it would be self-control, would you not? He was willing to control himself in order that he might achieve the, the greater goal. Some of you may be old enough to remember Mark Spitz when he was an athlete in the first, the first World Olympic, went, uh, a summer Olympics, and he set the bar. In fact, I don't think that bar has ever been matched or surpassed, but he was a swimmer in, in the Olympic Games, and he came home with something like six gold medals. He retired, and some years later, I think it was in the late 80s, maybe the, the mid-90s, he came out of retirement to go back to the Olympic Games. He wasn't as successful as he was in that first series, but he was successful. He won some medals, I think bronze, maybe won gold. But the one thing that I'll remember about that second attempt was an interview that he had with uh, someone on television. And as I was watching that, and I'm not going to get it exactly, this is not verbatim, it's just a rough summary of what he had said to that interviewer. But the interviewer said, what is your daily life like? And he said something like this, I get up in the morning, I study theory and swimming and exercise, and then I swim and exercise for two hours. I eat a wholesome breakfast, and then mid-morning I study some more theory, and then I, 
I swam some more, exercised some more. I ate a healthy lunch. I exercise in the afternoon. I study theory in the afternoon. And then I eat my evening meal. And then at night, I study theory and relax to begin it all over again the next day, seven days a week. Now that man was putting in an incredible amount of preparation for something that was physical, that would not last. And as I look at the athlete, I think about self-discipline that it takes for the Christian to run the race and be as successful at winning that race as athletes are at winning the contest that they engage in. It takes self-control, does it not? Let's go back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's look at the third uh, analogy, and this is the husbandman. The husbandman that labors has to be the first, is the one that is the first to partake of the fruits. That, our modern terminology, we'd say that's a farmer. Well, I know what a farmer does. He labors. His, word is, his work is difficult. It's strenuous. When I graduated from school, my first preaching work was in South Central Oklahoma. It was a farming community. And we had several brethren who had farms, and we came, became particularly close to one of the couples there. And he would always invite me to come out to his farm to fish or just to help out on chores. So I went, and he asked me one day, he said, would you like to help me plow the back 40 acres or however much it was and I said I'd love to Herman but I don't know how to drive a tractor he says you can learn now this was in the days before all these tractors had cabs with air conditioning these were in the days when the tractors were open so I climbed on that tractor and he said you follow me I'll be in the tractor in front of you. You keep your wheel inside the outside rut of my wheel and you'll be fine when I started out, the wind was in my face. It was a nice spring morning. I loved it. I thought I could make a living at farming. I made a turn to the left, and the breeze was off the right side. Beautiful day. But when I made that next turn, and that wind was coming from my back, all of that dust and all of that dirt came billowing up over my head, and I was breathing dust for that long row to the end. I came home that night, I was absolutely filthy. I was breathing dirt. I had mud in my eyes, my throat. I was choking, I was coughing. And I thought to myself, that's too hard for me. I'm glad I'm a preacher and don't have to work that hard physically speaking. But I understand that farmers work hard. And I think you do too. Now let's go back through each one of these and let's see if there's a principle that Paul wanted to drive home to Timothy in order to accomplish the goal. Go back to the soldier for just a minute. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier. No soldier on service entangleth himself in the affairs. There's two words of interest there. One of these is the word affairs. That Greek word is where we get our English word pragmatist. Then it was used to refer to someone who's skilled in business affairs, a banker maybe. Uh, it may apply to someone today who maybe is on Wall, on, on Wall Street in New York City, but it's somebody who is skilled in the things of this world. And Paul is saying you don't want to get entangled in the things of this world, things that are right in and of themselves. 
but they become wrong when we get caught up in those things and they allow us to be drawn away from taking care of the really important things in life. I shared this illustration at the camp with the teenagers when we were out at camp, Logi, I think that's how you pronounce it. I, I had a, a little set of what they call Chinese handcuffs. You ever seen any of those? They're no, they don't come from China. We have a Chinese student, by the way, at school, and I went over to him and I said, do you know what this is? He had no idea what it was. But it's a little tube that's weaved so that when you stick your fingers inside that little tube, if you, as you pull, you can't get your fingers out. Now, if that's all I had on there, I could work those out and I could disengage my fingers. But I said, what if I put two on there? I could still work. What if I put three on there? And some years ago, I actually got five of those and stuck all my fingers in those little webs. I was caught. I was trapped. There's no way that I could get out with some kind of an assistance. I think I used my chin like this to get out of it. But you become entangled. What, what Paul is saying is it's easy to become entangled in the things of this life and lose sight of what is really, really important. Move down to the illustration of the, of the athlete, if you will. If a man contend in the games, he's not crowned unless he contends lawfully. That's the key right there. You have to run according to the rules of the game. Every athlete knows that. If I could invent the rules in golfing, I could make a hole in one on every single hole, could I not? If I could invent the rules, I could make a touchdown every time I got the ball and gave it to somebody who was a member of the team. But I don't invent the rules, I play by the rules. And the rule book that's given to us is God's Word. And unfortunately, there are some who look at it as only a rule book and not as a guide to life, but it's still a law that has to be followed. I don't buy into this philosophy that we're living under a system of total grace and no law. How do you deal with passages like Galatians chapter one, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, where Paul said that we're to help restore those who have fallen away and thus fulfill the law of Christ? How do you deal with passages like Romans chapter 8 that talks about the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus? There is a law, but thankfully it's mingled with grace as well for those who are obedient to that law. So I have to run lawfully. I have to make sure I engage in a lawful manner according to the, to the Word of God. Then the last illustration is the husbandman. Now, even though this is not stated as such, it's implied. What does a farmer do? He plows the ground, and then he puts the seed into the ground, and then he covers the seed up, and he nurtures the ground till the crop comes out. He knows you have to get the seed in the ground. Imagine this scenario. Here's a farmer that goes to the banker and he says, I need to borrow $50,000 for this next year's operation. And the banker says, great, great, you've got a good record. In the past, you've always paid the loan back. What crop are you growing this year? And he says, oh, we're going we're gonna to fix our house up real nice. Great, but what crop are you growing? I'm going to buy a brand new tractor this year. 
But what crop are you going to grow? Oh, we're going to fix all the implements. We're going to get everything up running, get everything done. I'm going to fix the barn. I'm going to repair the windows and the doors. Everything is going to be comfortable. And the banker says, what crop are you planting? And he says, well, I'm not planting a crop this year. There's not a farmer alive who doesn't realize you have to put the seed in the ground if you expect a crop. You want the church to grow? you've got to get the seed in the ground. You want to be instrumental in bringing your neighbors and your friends to Christ, you've got to get the seed into the hearts of men. That's the point that Paul was trying to get across. Let's go back last of all. Let's look at three rewards that stand out. Verse 4, No soldier entangleth himself in the affairs of this life that he may... I have that word please circled in my Bible that he may please him who enrolled him as a soldier. I can't think of any words I would rather hear when I'm raised from the dead than to hear my Savior say, well done, good and faithful servant. Can you? Not just because it will allow me to enter into heaven, but because I will know that I have pleased the one that enrolled me and I've done all that I can to make him happy. Enter into the joys of thy heaven. Look at the reward that's associated with the, uh, with the athlete. He, uh, he says in verse 5, no, a man, If also a man contend in the games, he's not crowned. crowned. Why do you think Mark Spitz spends all the hours he spends in preparation for those Olympic games? You think it was just for that little piece of gold? No, it wasn't. It was for the crown. It was for the recognition. It was for the opportunity to stand before that multitude in an arena and stand on the top platform and hear the national anthem to his country being played and watch that flag being raised as he represents his country. That was the reward for him. And our reward is to represent Christ and ultimately to be recognized not only by Christ and God, but the angels and all the saints with whom we're going to spend eternity. It's a desire to receive that recognition from God himself. Look at the last illustration. When he talks about the husband, when he says the husband is the first one to partake of the fruits. And I, for years... I struggle with that. What are the first fruits? What are the first fruits? And as I think about the, 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 the preacher, the teacher, that's teaching others, and sometimes sitting across the table in a home Bible study, and you're studying with them, and all of a sudden they see the truth. They see the truth. And they're ready to confess the name of Christ. And you take them down to the baptistry, and when you plunge them under that watery grave into that watery grave and they come out and their tears flowing down their cheeks and as hard as you tried to stay dry it was almost futile because they embrace you and they hug you and they say thank you for showing me the way that's the first fruits if you've never had the opportunity to have someone express their appreciation because you because you played a vital role in their conversion you're missing a joy that is next to none this side of heaven. The ability to have others show you how much they love you and they appreciate you. The, the rewards are numerous. 
But as Paul sets forth these three illustrations, what the point he's driving home to all of us is we need to be teachers. We need to be like a soldier that's ready to engage the battle. We need to be like an athlete who's willing to discipline themselves and run the race all the way to the end. We need to be like the husbandman that's willing to put the seed into the ground and look forward to that opportunity when others obey the gospel and share in the joy that we share in. If you're not a child of God this morning, we typically extend the Lord's invitation to those who are desirous to be obedient of His will, hearing the gospel, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, willing to acknowledge that before men, and then to be buried with Him in that watery grave bab baptism upon repentance. You'll come out of that grave a soldier of Christ and a teacher in His kingdom. And once you've done that, you do all that you can to keep that ball rolling and to teach others. If you've obeyed the gospel, you've drifted away. Maybe you've been entangled in the things of the world. Get untangled. If you've drifted away, come back. Ask the brethren here to pray in your behalf and be restored to active duty. It's his invitation. If we can assist you in any way, would you come as we stand, as we sing for your encouragement.